0: Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Edward Struzik. Edward, how you doing?
1: I'm doing just fine, thanks.
0: Folks, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon on 101.9 FM KVSH. Learn more about the show at marchtwisdale.com. All righty, so, Edward... Let's go ahead and get started with you grounding our audience and who you are, what you do.
1: Uh, Well, I'm a fellow of the Institute for Energy Environmental Policy at uh, Queen's University in Canada, and I'm a contributing writer to Yale Environment 360, which is published uh, out of Yale University and I write about global environmental issues that uh, matter to most people, and I explore ways of us adapting to the new environmental paradigm that's emerging out there.
0: Right. I think earlier during our pre-chat, you made sort of a comment like there is no normal anymore.
1: No, there hasn't been a, a normal for a long time, and we're seeing a new normal kind of unfolding. But it's unclear what uh, you know what the end game is going to be. And so that's, I think, the most interesting part of my job is trying to figure out uh, how we're going to get from here to wherever we're going to be down the road.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. What's what actionable options do we have? Yeah. Okay. So, um, folks, uh, let's see real quickly. Edward, if people wanted to uh, connect with you, ask questions or um, check out some of your other writing, do you have a personal website?
1: I don't have a personal website but I do uh, there's a collection of all of many of my uh articles on Yale Environment 360 that's all you need to type in and type in my name and you'll see what I've written uh there for the past uh, 5 or 6 years and then you can look up Island Press, my last two in Washington, D.C. That's my publisher. My last two books were published by Island Press, and they have a pretty good biography of me.
0: Some of your books, there's the most recent one that I'm looking at that's in my hands right now. Thank you very much for sending this out to me. Is called Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. As everybody knows, 2017 was a brutal fire year in the Pacific Northwest and the Pacific Coast. California's tragedies are still shocking many of us. This was super, super relevant. The previous book was Future Arctic, and the one before that was The Big Thaw. So that the, both of those deal with the Arctic, correct? They okay. did, yes. Okay, and then you have 10 Rivers, which is all about canoeing, which is like a really fun topic. And then Northwest Passage, you said was a textbook?
1: It's a history book. It's really a um, a 500-year history of the search for a Northwest Passage through the Arctic and uh oh,
0: Okay, okay, okay. Got it. That's the idea of can we get from here to Europe through the Arctic. Yeah. Oh wow. My writing. People really tried to do that for a long time before they like gave up.
1: That's right. It was really, it was, it was 500 years search, and uh, I think more than 100 ships failed to make it. Uh, it was probably one of the uh, most expensive um, searches in uh, history, and by the time they did find it in 1905, or five, was, traveled a, a route through it, uh, it really didn't matter anymore because they realized that there was just so much ice that it couldn't become a per- commercial waterway, although that's changing Quickly now.
0: I was just going to say, so hold on, <laughs> because it sounds like um, what was blocking access has now ceased to be. I mean, currently, right now, basically every summer we have a Northwest Passage, don't we?
1: Pretty much, yeah. It's 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 navigable, uh, but it's still very dangerous. Mm-hmm. It- I think the problem right now is that uh, we don't have any ports or roads or really we don't even have very good navigational charts to lead ships through there. So there is an accident uh, with one of these ships. It would be I think it would make the Exxon Valdez oil spill look like a minor event.
0: Right, 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 right. Not that we really want to be encouraging us to go and bring our lovely human noise to one of the last places on the planet that has thus far lived without human engagement. I mean, every living creature up there under the ice is pretty much free from our intrusion. Largely,
1: yeah, it is one of the last wild places in the world.
0: I'm aware that there has been, by the current administration, a real shutdown on I believe the EPA and a lot of scientists are feeling like they're being blocked from communicating what they are learning. For you, given your fellow and the different work you have in this realm, what is your thinking about what's going on on the political level right now?
1: Well, I think you summed it up quite nicely, is that there really is an assault on science uh, right now. And uh, I think it's very dangerous because I think science can uh, provide us with a roadmap to the future. You know, um, how do we get from here to where we want to be down the road? We're not going to be able to do that without uh, understanding the scientific uh, mechanisms that are uh, involved in fighting fires, involved in predicting the movement of fires, um, and uh, what the future is going to look like.
0: So this this is perfect, perfect segue, because human beings engage In two ways with the forest we do so in an accidental unaware way and then we do so in an intentional way and you had mentioned earlier like there was a big burn in 1910 I think you said and that the Forest Service both in Canada and the US made some decisions based upon that on how to engage with the forest you also mentioned the effects of logging on the forest on one hand, I want to say, let's go back. So I want you to take us back a little bit and explain some of the mistakes that got us here. And then the other piece is that if we're going to correct for those mistakes and handle things better in this uncertain future, it's going to take investment, dollars, thoughts, minds, and energy to come up with new and better ideas. But how about you first tell our listeners what it was that sort of made things worse over the past century?
1: Where When it all started is when we started se- settling uh, the The American West, and we started logging uh, building settlements in forested communities and we at the time uh, we didn 't have the resources to be able to fight fires, so there are a number of huge, huge fires that had a catastrophic impact on on the, that human settlement and probably the most notable was the big burn of 1910, a fire that burned uh, pretty much all summer long along the uh, Idaho, Montana, British Columbia, Alberta border. It was a monster fire, and following that fire, uh, I mean, the army was brought in, uh, towns burned down, people died, and following that fire, the U.S. Forest Service uh, decided on a policy to fight every fire that burned in the forest. And then uh, the the Canadians did the same thing shortly after. So what happened over time was that uh, we didn't allow nature to take its course uh, in the forested world. So if there was a lightning strike, we went in and we put out those fires. Um, What I think was missing at the time was that uh, fires are essential to rejuvenating forests. Uh, Young forests are much more resilient to wildfire and old forests are much more vulnerable. And so what we did over an 80, 90, 100 year period was we created a very vulnerable forest. Um, and we didn't allow Mother Nature to take its its its, its uh, to play its role in rejuvenating these forests that become vulnerable not only to wildfire but to disease and to insects.
0: Right, As- right, right. Let me jump in there for a second. You talked yeah. about there's these. You mentioned insects earlier. There's some sort of a beetle plague that's been attacking a bunch of trees over the past couple of decades. What is that beetle?
1: it's the mountain pine beetle in in uh, your part of the world in pretty much northwest pacific it's traveling now east into montana and uh, alberta moving into saskatchewan it's like a slow moving freight train that uh, is decimating forests there are just tens of millions of trees that have died right and, and
0: it, yeah 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 so so you're suggesting that It's sort of like um, when we do monoculture in our agriculture, you know, plow a field, plant only one type of crop, then you are inviting whatever insect it is that eats that crop to really have a massive population boom because there's so much food and they can hang out all together and have lots of sex and lots of babies. Oops, I don't think I can say that. Oh, I can say it. Have lots of sex, lots of babies, and the next thing you know, you've got this explosion of a particular pest because of monoculture. So in a way, by not allowing the forest to burn and by just maintaining them, we created an excessive amount of food for certain pests, which are now taking advantage of that opportunity. That's
1: right. And those pests are killing tens of millions of trees. And basically that's just firewood for lightning or, you know, an arsonist or people who start a fire accidentally.
0: Right. Oh, and so okay, okay. Okay. So we had some past policy decisions and then along the way, as you said earlier, loggers would come in and say, Hey, let us help out. How did that play out?
1: Well, you know, there's a, what, what's happened is when a forest burns, typically the loggers come in and say, we'll salvage what's left out there. Um, and for a long time, we really didn't know what the environmental impact of that was. And it's becoming increasingly clear that this salvaging can actually suppress the rejuvenation of the natural reju- rejuvenation of that forest. Um, and uh, alter the landscape in ways that uh, that are not as as uh, positive as they would be if you just allowed, you know, the fire to burn and, and and the forest to rejuvenate on its own.
0: Do you mean sort of like in order to access the trees, they have to create roads and they cause erosion potential? Is it things like that, plus all the, you know, excess Soil that maybe flows into the rivers and damages the, you know, fisheries. Is that what you're talking about or is there something else going on?
1: No, that's one of the things is that when you go in and you clear out a forest, uh, you know, you make that area much more vulnerable to erosion. And if uh, you have heavy rainfalls, uh, all of that, um, the 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 carbon, the, the particulates, the chemicals that, uh, you know, uh, emerged out of that burn will wash up into a river and go downstream, and you know the town of Denver and good part of Colorado experienced this in 2002 when the Hay- Hayman fire burned. It wasn't so much the logging in, th- in that case, but it burned the forest so uh, cleanly uh, that uh, it resulted in a huge erosion problem, and it nearly knocked out the uh, the uh, Water treatment uh, plants that serve seventy five percent of the population of uh, Colorado
0: wow, right, all right, okay, so um, what about logging efforts? And, and I'm not anti logging I just have to put that out there, but I'm just exploring this aspect. Um, what about logging efforts where they say we're gonna go into this forested area we're gonna that has not burned yet? we're going to thin out the deadwood, we're going to basically make it healthier, and then it'll be less vulnerable to fires. What's going on with that?
1: Well, you know, that's a really interesting uh, question, because the debate uh, is ongoing there, is that what do you do with all of this deadwood? And I think a case can be made that, yeah, you can harvest it. But if you clear cut it, then you Produce the same kind of situation you have in any in a in a normal clear cut environment. Is that number one you drive out all of those species such as spotted owls, and caribou, and many many other animals that are dependent on an old growth forest. Um, you also uh, compact you know these the, the the logging companies compact the soil and you know can enhance erosion in these cases Mm -hmm. and so rejuvenation of the forest can become very difficult uh properly done i think to some extent you know the the that in in areas that are very very hard hit by these beetle infestations there may be no other choice and maybe in this case we can also exploit that to create uh, barriers uh around uh communities that are vulnerable to fire so there's a ah. the forest. if you clear the trees that it, that to some extent you know allows firefighters to you know anchor in to prevent the fire from getting to town it mm-hmm. also prevents, uh, you know that uh, makes it less likely that embers from a fire will uh get swept in and start fires within town so You know, that's one example where probably logging would be beneficial.
0: Okay, okay. So now this book, here's what I like about this book, folks. You know, there's a lot of books out there, and um, sometimes you just look at the front cover, you look at the topic, you're like, oh, I'm interested in the topic. It must be a great book. But we all know that some books are like – really, really dense reads, or they're just sort of hard to stay focused with, or they feel overwhelming, like there's, you know, 29 chapters or something like that. What I like about this book is that there are 10 chapters, and it feels very doable. And I love your headings, each heading makes it pretty clear what I'm going to get out of it. And I like the way you write. Um, it's not, It doesn't come across uh, too much like a textbook. Uh, you've got some first-person stories in there, and there's images, quotes. So this is a very accessible book for anyone who's curious to learn more. And I think all of us should want to learn more about this subject right now because wherever we live, fire is an issue that we're going to face going forward. I'm here on Vashon Island, very close to one of the the wettest areas of the continental U.S. In fact, Forks, Washington, I think, gets more rain than anywhere, as we all know from the Twilight series. So, um, And yet, over the last three summers, and many of you will remember it if you're local, but if you're not, this gives you a sense of what's going on over here. It used to be normal to have rain during the summer once or twice a week through the whole summer. In fact, as a gardener or farmer, I would water my entire garden maybe six times a year. That was about it. Three years ago, we had 90 more than over 90 days in a row with zero rain. Two to three times a week, 90 days of nothing. Pretty extreme difference, and the media was all over it. But then the next summer, same thing happened. I think we hit like 80 some odd days in a row of no rain. And the media ignored it. It was as if it wasn't worth talking about anymore. And um, and what I found interesting was a lot of people would say, oh, it's such a lovely summer. It's so beautiful. And I remember at the end of that second summer, I finally snapped at someone and I feel bad about it still because she turned to me in like, you know, early September and said, it's been such a lovely summer. Isn't this great weather? And I said, no, this is not good weather. This is terrible. I don't even walk in the forest anymore because everything's dying. It feels awful. This is bad weather. So, Ed... You and I were talking earlier about Cedar Shake, how far um, these little embers can fly through the sky, land, and cause damage, and what does the smoke do to us, the chemicals in wildfire smoke, and things that local communities can do to protect themselves against um, air quality problems. You know. Uh, so let's go into that direction. Tell us a little bit about... What type of roof people should not be putting on their houses?
1: Cedar uh, so shake shingles, for one. I mean, they're highly combustible. As everyone knows cedar is a great way to start a campfire. Um, and if you have it on your roof, uh, you know, fire can be five miles away. But if it's really windy, the embers from that fire can, can travel five miles, but uh, And if it gets on your roof, it can start a fire. If your house is uh, made of wood, your house is gone, and perhaps your neighbor's house is gone. Um, Similarly, if you've got uh, cedars or junipers growing right up next to your house and you've gone through a hot, dry summer like you had in 2015 and 2017, Mm -hmm. those trees are vulnerable to fire. If you uh, if you got mulch on your on your property, uh, look at that as just you know the fuse to light a stick of dynamite. Because if the embers get into the mulch and the mulch is extremely dry, it will just lead right up to your wood house and burn it. So you know there's a landscaping issue, there's a building um, code issues. There are a number of things that people can do to make themselves resilient to the impact of fire on their property. But I think you know the other one is that um, you know fire uh, produces smoke, and we know that uh, smoke from wildfires have pretty much all the same harmful chemicals that you find in tobacco smoke. And I think one of the things that I find rather alarming is that public health officials, you know, suggest that short-term exposure to this uh, smoke is not really going to have a serious impact on your health. Um, And I just don't know where that comes from because uh, I've never seen any study that has been done uh, to suggest that uh, smoke from wildfires is any safer than smoke from tobacco.
0: You know where I think it probably comes from is that generally public health will discourage the public from being worried about something if public health does not have a ready solution to the problem. I think that's
1: exactly the explanation for why they say that. Yep. Uh, but, you know, the uh, if you take the precautionary approach, then, you know, you do as I think uh, public health officials doing now is that they warn people, uh, you know, with asthma, the elderly with respiratory problems to stay indoors, shut your windows, you know, don't go outside and try to, you know, go for a long, vigorous walk. Um, that's one solution, but I think uh, probably a better solution for the really vulnerable people is that we have to have these safe havens, these refuges for people, community centers, which have air purifiers, places where people can go very vulnerable people can go in the summertime when you have that thick smoke that migrates from a wildfire and we know that smoke can come a long distance you know the fires that were you know that were happening in british columbia this summer i'm sure traveled all the way down to the seattle area
0: oh no absolutely the the first smoke that the first smoke that hit was coming down from british columbia Then we had smoke that actually was coming up from Oregon. Then we had smoke that was coming over from eastern Washington. Like I said, I think we had about three weeks that were smoke-free this summer. And otherwise, it was almost three and a half to four months of some level of smoke and many weeks in a row of very intense smoke. I... I do not have asthma. I did not have breathing difficulties related to that. I don't smoke anything at all, so my lungs are really healthy. But I began to feel a sense of claustrophobia in a way, a sense of – there was a sense of wrongness. It was like this subliminal level that I could recognize and name as as a panic that I was not allowing to take over. There was that much of a sense of wrongness, and I was intentionally not allowing it to grow. Um, so, and that's me breathing fine, you know, and there's, there was so many people that I knew, what are you going to do? Oh, stay in your house with the windows closed for three and a half months. Um, like you say, safe places where the air is clean, where a person can go be productive, you know, buy coffee, see their friends, use the internet. You know, we, I think that was a great idea. And in a way people might be resistant to the idea because it means that we're accepting that this is a a serious and real part of our future life, but better to accept it and prepare than be in denial.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that there's no question. Uh, You know, it wasn't just uh, uh, by accident that, uh, you know, you had big fires in your part of the world in 2015 and 2017. I think this is a trend that you're gonna be seeing more and more often. And it just doesn't, it doesn't necessarily take 80 or 90 days of drought for a fire to ignite. You know, uh, firefighters and, and, and fire scientists will tell you that, you know, sometimes it takes only 10 days uh, in 80 or 85 degree temperatures for a forest to be primed for a wildfire. Mm-hmm. And we just have so much forest, and we have the other thing is we have so many people uh, now playing, working, and living in the forest that the odds of more fires occurring just keep going up and up and up and up so i think the new normal is is that we are going to see more of these fires
0: right right so we have more vulnerable forests and we have a growing population which increases the already existent chance that human causes can happen and then of course lightning happens anyways so um now you meant like for example i want to talk a little bit about vashon island so we have really wonderful people doing the best they can to be our fire service here our You know, and they're really good at what they do when they can get access to a house. But um, we have a number of situations that will come up where a house will burn down because they couldn't even get nearby. You know, we've got all these houses on these funky little roads and these weird little goalies or whatever. And I keep thinking, if a fire were to take off somewhere on Vashon, would it spread? And then you had pictures. I remember... Pictures of what was going on in California, Santa Rosa in particular, where you would have these huge areas where most of the houses, all of them were completely gone. And then like popping up here or there would be houses that were like untouched next to decimated homes. So there's obviously some interesting science that goes into how fire travels. What can you tell us about that?
1: Well, you know, it all depends on what kind of fuel you have on the ground. Uh, fortunately, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, you do have a foggy landscape and you do have f- trees that I think are a l- lot more resilient to burning uh, than the, fo- the, the forests that you have that grow in, say, Idaho, Montana, uh, British Columbia, and Alberta, which is a boreal forest. I mean, those, those forests were born to burn. Um, but that said, is that if it gets dry enough and you don't get the rain, um, it doesn't take a lot to ignite a fire. And the thing that we're seeing now really worldwide, this isn't just a you know North American problem, it's a global no. issue is that uh, as the climate heats up and it has been heating heating up pretty dramatically, you're also getting stronger winds. And if we have winds like we had in California this past summer, there's really nothing firefighters can do to stop those fires mm-hmm. uh and you know you can you can have all the water bombers you, you uh, available, but really the best that they can do is maybe steer the fire in a different direction so I think what we've got to do uh is have uh, uh contingency plans in place is like they do in Australia, which learned you know after so many devastating fires is that If a fire occurs, you've got to let hospitals and schools and government uh, workers know, where do you go in the event of fire? Um, And when do you evacuate? Most cities in North America don't have plans like that in place. Uh, We kind of wait to the last minute. And in the case of Fort McMurray, which burned in 2016, You know, there was 88,000 people, you know, racing through a fire in the middle of the night trying to get out of town. And they were all so lucky to get out of there alive.
0: Right, right. It's so interesting when you look at generations. I'm 45 and people in my generation and above They have a sense of, you know, the the television's going to go beep, you know, in this emergency broadcast system. I mean, you know, a lot of us grew up hearing those little practice experiments they would do on the television. So maybe that's what we think is that there's a a high-level group that's watching what's going on, and if something bad's happening, they'll alert us, and then we get to respond. We get to be told what to do. But what happened in California was that when the fire was moving so quickly and going across roads, it was wiping out a lot of the telephone lines and, you know, internet lines and and all that. And so my friends who were up near the Ukiah area, they had friends that were in areas where there was zero connection you couldn't get information from anywhere a small town and they were woken up in the middle of the night by some dogs barking and the fire was like eight feet away from the house moving down the hill no one knew it was coming because no one could be reached and people had to jump out of their houses get in their cars honking banging on doors and within about 15 minutes something like 23 houses in the small community had been self-evacuated people literally couldn't pick up a single object Robe in hand, run outdoor, flee for your life. So I think um, local resiliency is definitely a major theme of the future ahead of us.
1: It sure is. And, you know, there's, a, there's a, uh, a strategy that's called stay and defend. And I don't necessarily agree with it, but there are some positives to it. Is that in the event that you can't or you don't know where to go or what to do, Uh, people who live in these forested worlds should be able to know what they have to do to stay and defend their house and themselves. And this goes back to the building codes and also trying to figure out where do you go in your property area to escape, you know, getting killed by that fire. Most of us are just not very well educated. And so when the fire burns, you know, we're all running around with our hands up in the air trying to figure (laughs) out, do I go, where do I go? Right. It's chaotic. And I think that, you know, uh, it has to be incumbent on, you know, counties and on, you know, state governments to try to educate people uh, about what to do when a fire occurs. We've got to have kind of a plan in place, you know, a you call it a code red uh, plan plan but something which will instruct people what to do if there is a fire threatening their homes or their community.
0: Yes, individuals saying, hey, does anybody else have a plan? What, what are you going to do? Like, imagine if tomorrow everyone who listened to this show went to their favorite coffee shop in the morning on the way to work or whatever, went to their, their office and said, hey, I'm wondering if there was a huge fire, you know, on that street in this neighborhood, what's your family's plan for dealing with it? How are you going to respond? Where are you going to go? If everyone asked that question, I bet 95% of people would get an answer of, I- I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, they don't, most people don't think about it.
0: I don't know what I would do. Everywhere I would drive, I'd be driving through forested lanes, <laughs> surrounded by trees in almost every direction.
1: And people also forget the grass burns, you know, pretty nicely if it uh if it gets dry enough. So you know, there'd be a lot of grass in between the forest and a house, but uh, if the grass is really dry, that's not going to stop the fire from getting to where you are.
0: Well, if I felt it was far enough away from the trees, my thinking on that would actually be to do what the people did in um, the Bushmen of Kalahari Desert, you know, where you actually light the grass on fire and you get it to burn and then you step into the center area that's already burned because now there's no more fuel there.
1: Yes, that's that's one of the philosophies of or the strategies of firefighters is, uh, you know, one foot in the black, they say, because the black is unlikely to burn uh, over again. Right. But, you know, these are things that, uh, you know, fire can move very, very quickly. And most of us don't have the wherewithal to, you know, think about these things. And you do have do you have a place where, you know, you think you can light a fire? Uh, do you have the matches in place? It's not easy to light a fire in, in many cases, mm-hmm. uh, but once it gets going, you know, there's, it's not easy to stop it. So these are all the kind of things that everybody, I think, has to think about. There's, there's several programs in place, one called FireWise, another one called FireSmart. And these are national programs which help communities and homeowners adapt to the possibility of fire. Tell them what to do to make yourself more resilient to fire, and I urge people to look that up because they've got some really good advice.
0: So let's repeat the name of those two groups again.
1: Uh, firewise, I think, when you're part of the world, would be the the program to look at. It's an excellent program. It's, they mm-hmm. really think through what a, what a communities need to do to become more resilient to fire.
0: Right, right. We have a a lot of disaster preparedness on Fashion Island, which is focused on the fact that when the big one, the earthquake comes or some major disaster, when you look at um, all the local state emergency response groups, we're like three weeks down on their list of get to, right? So everyone's like focused on this, you know, idea that we will lose all of our resources, the trucks aren't going to show up with food, you know, there won't be electricity, how do we survive for three weeks? But I haven't actually ever heard anyone say, how do we respond to a moving active fire? So I'm actually going to check in with our Be, Vashon Be Prepared and other groups and find out if they do have already a fire plan in place. In which case, folks, I will go ahead and link to that as well. And when you go to marchtwisdale.com, Ed, is there one final thing, one gem you want to throw out there for folks with regard to how we live in the future world And relate to fire
1: yeah i think that you know that it's becoming increasingly clear that we just can't fight all fires that there just aren't enough firefighters water bombers and helicopters and heavy equipment to go around and you know as 2015 and 17 showed triaging has become the order of the day i think what we've got to do is really learn to live with fires because that's a natural part of the landscape we've got to treat them the same way that we do tornadoes and hurricanes We don't try to stop them because we can't. And I think that we have to look at wildfire the same way is that a big mega fire cannot be stopped. So we've got to find ways of adapting it, managing in ways, you know, which minimize the impact that it has on our lives.
0: You know, that actually triggers a question for me. When people who are experts in this field look back on fires and evaluate what was done the the response to the fires in general do they find that the efforts um, substantially improved the outcome or is there an element of we're running around doing a whole bunch and making ourselves feel good that we're responding but perhaps the the value of all of that response energy and effort Is relatively minimal.
1: Well, you know, you look at the Yellowstone fire of 1988. That made the, I think, the front page of the Los Angeles Times. I think 33 times that summer. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the president at the time, weighed in on it. Uh, The the Secretary of State weighed in in on it. The Interior Secretary. They were all angry that uh, the National Park Service let those fires burn beginning and they said that they were never going to let that happen again and most people thought you know yellowstone a nikon you know of uh, of american natural history uh was going to be destroyed and now we know uh very shortly after that that f- the, you know that the the natural state returned and it was healthier and much more resilient to fire in fact grizzly bears moved in on the fire-scarred landscape immediately and started feeding on the carrion. And then the following year, you know, they started eating on the mushrooms and the berries that started growing up after that. And so they actually got healthier because of the fire. And so we know, you know, that uh, fighting every fire is really not helping nature um, become resilient.
0: And if we think about the amount of money spent on fighting a fire and then we and the potential for the loss of life and the people who, if they're volunteers, are taking time and energy out of their life to go and, and volunteer and not receive a paycheck, and we were to convert all of those resources to the recovery effort after the fire is over and the rebuilding and restructuring and support for people who lost their homes, what do you think? Would um, Do you think that um, it's worth making the economic argument? Sure, it is. I mean, right
1: now, if we continue throwing, you know, we're throwing so much money at, fire, at fighting fires. I think it's, you know, it's risen to about $2 billion a year. Uh, that's taking money away from... Uh, you know conservation programs that uh, and management programs in the forest and and programs that uh, uh, support you know the recovery of endangered species and also in uh, in rebuilding communities uh, that have been destroyed by fire you know that cost if we could if we could prevent that from happening and i think we can you know it provides a lot more money uh, less money to come out of out of uh, government to pay for the costs, uh, you know, to pay for FEMA and other uh, government organizations. That uh, it's it's going to be a lot easier on our taxes, and we could use it for other resources.
0: Yeah, imagine if the firefighting volunteers were um, trained in how to do public outreach and education volunteerism, and um, we had more people able to go out and help people evaluate the regions around their home and how can you remove these trees over here or change that so that your home is now more likely to survive a fire. So in a way, human beings have always sort of um, had to grapple with what makes us feel good, yay, I'm responding, wah, and what is logically most effective, which sometimes is um feels counterintuitive but may still be the better option
1: yeah exactly
0: all right so who in the scientific uh firefighting um arena world is perhaps promoting that idea right now
1: i'm sorry i didn't get that
0: so so who in the arena of firefighting science and effort and all of this stuff who's out there promoting this idea that we do things differently where could a person go to learn more and find out who I can write a letter to or who can I donate to? Well, who are the people who are sort of like championing this, this better way of um, responding and approaching?
1: Um, you know, you, you can read my book and you can get a lot of ideas from that, but uh, you can also uh, consult the fire wise and fire smart programs. Uh, you can easily find those on the internet and they, you know, have a lot of advice and, uh, A lot of services that people can tap into Uh, I think think... what
0: I meant was in Canada if a person wants to track the political movement of this idea and support and encourage their elected representatives to pay attention who would they go to who's lobbying on this issue
1: that's the problem very few Uh... there are very few people who uh, or organizations out there um, who are uh, you know, working, trying to get government, you know, there's the Institute for Catastrophic Loss that's based out of Toronto that's on top of that. And that's basically an insurance um, organization because the insurance industry is getting very, very concerned, quite naturally, about about fires. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and they want the government to do something about it. Uh, right now, the governments on both sides of the border just aren't listening. Uh, the, there's, the strategy generally has been that it's a business as usual scenario. And as Tom Zimmerman, who used to head up many of the U S forest service and national park service fire management program says business as usual in this day and age is not going to be successful.
0: Mm-mm. No, definitely not. All right, well, then maybe probably the most actionable thing people can take away from this, folks of you who are out there listening right now, is figure out wherever it is you live, talk to your friends and family over the holidays, you know, whenever you're gathering with people who you love and care about throughout the year, and say, hey, do you have a fire plan, you know, and do you have a local group in your town or neighborhood or county at the biggest level that is dealing with this issue have you talked to your local fire department and asked them you know because that's that's a beautiful place to go local fire departments are going to know their the uniqueness of their region so they're all going to have totally different answers because it's based upon oh we live on the beach so here's our concern or whatever it is so folks go out there find out what people know locally come up with your own plan encourage your friends and family and coworkers to do the same and I guess that might be a great place to start.
1: You know, and they might even you know look up the International Association of Wild, Wildland Fire. It's an organization that represents a lot of different interests. Um, I think some valuable inf- information can be gleaned there uh, as well.
0: And what's the name of that place again, or group?
1: It's called the uh, International um, Association of Wildland Fire, and uh, the current president is Thomas Zimmerman who uh, headed up many of the uh, top-level wildfire management programs in the U.S. Forest Service and the U.S. National Park Service.
0: And he is the one who said that the idea of business as usual is not a successful one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, brilliant. So let's talk a little bit about the Arctic, because you um, wrote two books about that, Future Arctic and The Big Thaw. So I guess maybe my question is for you, Do you have any messages of positivity or hope when it comes to the changes that are occurring dramatically and quickly in the Arctic region?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, the old Arctic that we know, you know, a land of ice, you know, and and permafrost and extremely cold weather and of polar bears, that that Arctic is coming to an end and a new Arctic <laughs> is unfolding. Um, and there's going to be a lot of casualties uh, in the new Arctic. Polar bears may be one, especially at the Southern end of their range, There are going to be you know, many other species that are going to be vulnerable. But I think, you know, that with any, every, everything, when something new unfolds that, we're such a powerful human force on Earth that I think we can shape the future in uh, in many ways. And uh, right now, we're just not doing that. You know, we continue to uh, manage the Arctic as we have, you know, for the past half century. And that is similar to what, you know, Tom Zimmerman said about wildfires, that business as usual is not going to be successful.
0: Right. Um, walruses in the Arctic eat these small little crustaceans that are down in the bottom of the, um, on the sand, right? And they have often sat on floating pieces of ice, which would make it easy for them to flop off and swim down because it's a relatively shallow, um, ocean region up there. And that supposedly with the melting ice, they're now stuck sitting on these little spits of land, which then can be very far away from the food source. And I had always wondered, I mean, you know, we have giant oil rigs everywhere. How hard would it be to create, you know, sort of um, anchored floating rafts, you know, out there that that they could sit on so they could have better access to their food source or something like that? Um, it, when I think of management, I think of something like that, and then I go, oh, that's probably a ridiculous idea, and someone's got a reason for why they would never do that. Is that a ridiculous idea?
1: You know, I don't know. I think that, um, but it's, you know, all of these things are worth considering and, uh, and testing. And I think that's the problem right now, is that many people have a lot of ideas of how to protect, how to, you know, conserve walrus populations and polar bear populations. You know, for example, with polar bears, there's some talk, you know, of, of putting food out for them in the summertime when they can't go out onto the sea ice and so sort of bridge that uh, time where, you know, they're in uh, in the starvation mode to get them through the summer so that they can go back hunting in winter. Um, but we've never really tested any of these theories and or ideas and and to determine whether or not they're worthwhile. And I think that's what we've got to start doing is 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 let's gather all of these ideas that are out there. And there are many, and they're outlined in my book, Future Arctic, which is also published by Island Press. Mm-hmm. And let's test them. And there are a number of places that we can test them. You know, Churchill, Manitoba, which is the polar bear capital of the world, has probably one of the most vulnerable polar bear populations. And they've done an extremely good job of managing that population up until now. But I think everyone agrees that something new and radical has got to be done. Do you provide you know supplementary food for them uh, in the summertime? Do you haze them in ways you know that are you know very aggressive to keep them away from, from humans um, There are any number of ideas. Do you you know there's even some talk of relocating them to other places, which I think probably is not a good idea. But you know, do we really know enough uh, about that to to make a definitive dismissal of that idea? I think that's what really needs to be done is we got to start going out there and testing them. You know, the other thing that we don't do is that the current administration, uh, you know, has opened up uh, oil and gas development in the Arctic. But, you know, there's still no way of separating oil from ice. So that if you have an oil spill, it's just going to travel under the ice where it's going to have an impact on all of those ice edge species, including beluga whales, narwhal, polar bears, seals, arctic cod, uh, any number of different species. And so we, you know, if we're, you know, I don't think that we should Uh, be drilling for oil and gas in the Arctic but if we do we've got to you know find a way of prevent better ways of preventing oil spills from happening and if they do happen, ways where we, you know, are more secure in our uh, our understanding of how to clean it up.
0: Or to, to basically, to gain this great lesson that history has taught us, it is to always use the word when, not if, if we're talking about oil spills, and to make sure that we have the, we've solidly and firmly had the technology in place to deal with the problem before we risk creating the problem. So it's like, in the past people have said well we can't solve the problem now but the people of the future well they'll figure it out so if it happens then that'll be their impetus to go find the solution then and we know how that worked out with the gulf oil spill right right so um so i think um until we can prove we're completely capable of managing all of these potential problems which will come up we should not create the potential for them to happen Um, but even so even if we were to have that approach any solution we want to explore I think needs to be one that is a sustainable one meaning let's take that idea I had about floating rafts or or, okay feeding feeding the polar bears right have the first thought that comes to mind for me is how you gonna get a bunch of dead cows or whatever it is you want to feed to the polar bears up there to plunk on the ground for a bunch of polar bears for three to four months in the middle of summer you're going to use fossil fuels to either fly or drive fossil fuel fed and raised domesticated animals up there. Or you're going to be using fossil fuels to get around as a hunter and hunting the local animals and then transporting them again with fossil fuels. So even if we chose to explore that and let's say it worked, it's a guaranteed stopgap measure because at some point, the availability of fossil fuels is going to go away. And I really doubt that alternative fuels are going to sweep in and completely replace them. So it's like, what would be the point of doing that for maybe eight years or 14 years just to have the program fail at that point because now we, we don't have the resource?
1: Well, I think maybe, you know, I, you're ex- absolutely right in what you say, but then the counter argument might be is that it might give us eight to 14 years of figuring out some other ideas. Yeah, uh, you know, unless we start testing them, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be permanent. And Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily support the idea of um, supplemental feeding for polar bears. But unless you give it a try and figure out, is this practical? Is it possible? Um, You know, then how do we know?
0: Right. And until we try it, we're not going to know the unintended consequences or, oh, whoops, we didn't realize that was going to happen or, hey, look, that's great. That goes even better than we thought. Experimentation is what you're sort of advocating for. We need to be intentionally trying things out.
1: We need some big ideas. You know, um, the United States is a big idea nation. And uh, if anybody can come up with solutions to some of these enormous problems that you know the world is facing it will come from the united states um and i think that we've got to empower our universities more our uh, research government research institutions more to come up with the answers that we need to solve some of these problems
0: i think you're completely right absolutely it's where we put our attention right we can focus on war (laughs) or we can focus on solutions yeah yeah, where do we put our minds, our thoughts, and our dollars?
1: It's a fa- you know, it's a fairly small investment. Science is not expensive, uh, uh, you know. Maybe it is in the area of you know investing in uh, you know cure for cancer, but some of these other other problems, uh, it doesn't take an awful lot of investment to figure out whether something is going to work or not. And I think that we've really underestimated the ability of our scientists to be able to solve a lot of our problems that we face in the natural world. We're very, you know, confident that they can, you know, find a cure for cancer. Um, and so we spend an awful lot of money in that area. But for these other problems, it's almost like we kind of dismiss it. That,
0: yeah, I you know- think ultimately it's because cancer is a major profit profit area. So, so if you if you know, if you come up with a cure for cancer, you've come up with a product you can sell to hundreds of millions of people who are guaranteed to get cancer. So you've got a huge population of customers and now you've got this product that you can sell to them and they're all gonna need it or they're gonna die. Yeah, I can totally get why that gets support. But something like this, um, you know, the polar bears are not going to be paying you know, money for us to help them out. So so the question is, fundamentally, in in the United States of America is, I think, as people, we have to decide, do we want to let profit be the number one determinant of where we put our attention and our efforts and our energy? Or do we want to move beyond that and into um, a whole different set of values?
1: I think we're doomed if we pursue profit in every case, yeah. uh, because that's not the answer to uh, creating a world, a sustainable world. It's not the answer to you know people who want to go out and join nature, who want to breathe clean air and drink you know fresh water. There has to be an investment in these things that don't turn a dollar.
0: Yeah yeah, absolutely. Ed, thank you so much for joining me on the show.
1: Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.
0: All right, folks, that's our show. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Edward Struzik. I'm going to spell that this time. It's S-T-R-U-Z-I-K. You can go to marchtwisdale.com, of course. Check out his bio. Listen to parts of the show you might have missed or shared it forward with other people. I'd like to thank you for listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.